everybody. Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism podcast. You guys totally screwed this up. Oh man! (laughs) I even tried to like gesture. (laughs) We didn't have. We need a script. Okay, so so this is Doomer Optimism episode two hundred, and we decided for this episode to kind of kind of invite everybody who's currently serving a a host role in some capacity to to come on and just talk about like what drew them to Doomer Optimism, uh, you know, why they keep hosting guests and, you know, what the what the vision is for, for them in particular. Um, we kind of accidentally, I don't even think we, Jason and I ever sat down and said like, let's make this a collective. I think it was just one of these things where people were like, you should host this person. And then we we're like, well, why don't you do it? <laughs> and then it turned into a collective, um, which I, I really like. I think I did say I wanted it to be a collective the first episode. Oh, I you did? Record here. I, I think we did float the idea of multiple hosts. Okay, uh, okay. So anyways, it has evolved successfully into a collective where we have a few groups of people who are kind of coming on and, and hosting things, their interpretation of Doomer Optimism. Um, so how should we start? Maybe. What do you think, Jason? Well, maybe everybody should, as a host, uh, recite how they introduce podcasts and then <laughs> introduce themselves. <laughs> I don't know. I think we should go around with each person here and talk, uh, maybe just briefly describe what their what their current interest uh, in hosting is, kind of, what, what kind of themes uh they're hosting around um and maybe that'll just kick off the conversation because it's quite a diverse group um i can start i've been taking a little break from hosting but my my interest um once i get back started again um i've got a couple of interests that have been really bubbling up lately um i've made friends with this guy gord who's like the canadian trucker guy is known as and I think that there is some room for thinking about like um, right to repair type stuff and like the freedom or sovereignty inherent in um, in being able to like have control over technology. Um, so this is like Matt Crawford's writing is big on that. And so I'm, I'm curious to delve into that a little bit. Um, and then I'm, of course, always just envisioning my um my uh i don't know trying to trying to make some sort of parisian salon uh and and finding really cool people to make friends with and then bringing people i want to be friends with on the podcast so that then i have an excuse to like meet them in real life and everybody knows that's my real ulterior motive and it's been pretty successful and i'll be meeting more people hopefully when i get back to chicago so those are my two interests. I'm going to toss it to Donald because hey, actually, the literary hour. Yeah. Was the guy that was talking about rainwater retention, was that a recent one or was that an old one? Uh, the Irish guy? Yeah, about how like uh, when there, he was describing how there was a year when there was a ton of rain and the sea levels dropped. And if we could just, that was really interesting. Yeah, I, and I actually love the gray water gardens stuff, gray water, ecological wastewater stuff. Um, 
I would love to do more on that too. Like I'm really interested in my brother. How come no one talks about that idea? I heard it and I was like, okay. I mean, there's actually a lot of like appropriate technology ideas. And I guess that's more like Josh's wheelhouse. But there's a lot of these like appropriate technology solutions that are like completely brilliant that almost nobody talks about, which I think would be a cool uh, thing to talk about. My brother's in charge of this municipality just outside of Chicago, and he's like the head engineer. And I'm like, I'm just going to do a whole series on stuff and then just send these to my brother. And maybe that'll be like the, 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 the pilot municipality to do all these cool appropriate technology things. Um, okay, Don, you go next, but then maybe okay. Josh after that. Well, as a preface, I live in a county in the far northwest of Washington, and my county has this amazing man named Randy Smalls, who's our local amateur weatherman, and he's really good. He's completely obsessed with weather in our county and does a lot of work, and he's promising us this week an atmospheric river, which is going to be interesting and hopefully doesn't involve flooding this time. It did. There was a lot of flooding in the county last time this happened. So I keep looking out the window waiting mm. for the water to come. Um, you better. Yeah, so I've been posting uh, uh, Doomer Optimism Literary Hours. Um, I don't know. I think I've done three at this point. So the first one was with a pair of women who decided to sit down at the kitchen table and learn old English together after their kids were asleep, which is a really neat uh, story. And then they published a translation of the Dream of the Rude, a classic old English poem. Um, and uh, and then Joey and I did one with um, <clears throat> a, a novelist, Jordan Castro, who wrote a novel called The Novelist. Um, and uh, we use that also just to draw out the history of this sort of recent, I don't know, Midwestern DIY literary movement, um, Alt-Lit, which some of you may have remembered. It was bouncing around uh, on the internet a while ago, but, um, <clears throat> and just talking about the possibility of sort of creating, you know, creating literary culture. And then the most recent one, I don't know if it's up yet, uh, I interviewed Sally Thomas, who, who uh, it is up. Okay, well, I got to email Sally about that, um, who wrote this wonderful novel, Works of Mercy. Um, and, you know, just interesting, but she homeschooled back before it was cool. And um, just a poet and writer, uh, really interesting regional book, also Works of Mercy, um, both talking about Scotland and about the American South. So uh, I want to keep doing these. I mean, I'm interested in, you know, I guess cultural renewal coming from creating things. Um, and uh, that <laughs> you don't have to ask for permission from anyone, you know, like the, the possibility of making things is, is available. Um, and I guess, you know, criticism is helpful. I was reminded something, so Christopher Ricks, when he was accused in faculty meetings of always being negative, don't you have anything positive to say? Replied, hygiene is positive. So criticism is good, um, but ultimately we have to make things. And so that's what I'm, I've been fascinated by, getting people on who are 
who are making things. And I think the 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 two women who taught themselves old English is sort of the perfect sort of doomer optimism literary ethos of like getting together with a neighbor at the kitchen table and 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 doing something like that. Um, but there's really nothing getting in the way if we want that to happen, you know, that that, that, that possibility is there. So that's what I've been doing. Um, there's a, there's a bunch of episodes I'd like to do. I kind of have a list in my head, not just literary ones. Like I'm, I really want to bring on, I had to contact him, but uh, Father Turbo Qualls is an Orthodox priest in Kansas City. His parish also runs an urban farm um, yeah. and a school. And, and there's a lot of interest, you know, finding people like that who are sort of, you know, doing, uh, building cool things. Um, mm-hmm and uh just doing it right away um and not waiting for some waiting for some uh cataclysmic event or something for everything to be lined up perfectly how about you jason oh about me in terms of what i'm doing or what i'm thinking about in terms of yeah yeah oh well i'm i wasn't expecting that uh i don't I don't really have a theory of of interviewing. I kind of just go with what seems interesting at the time. I mean, I noticed that I tend to waver between kind of big picture theory of change stuff and then people who are doing something interesting, practical, like farmers or homesteaders or uh, what have you, um, or just people that, you know, uh, I think Josh and I are kind of developing a little bit of a, a- Appalachian kind of themed you know set of podcasts which is really which is really cool um like ashley my ulterior motive is also to be able to use it as a uh, an excuse to meet people especially regionally and then eventually meet up with them and you know develop a a supportive network uh you know i think that's probably one of the best use cases of the podcast for me as well as just you know uh looking at um you know, thinking, thinking through theories of change as well as practical examples. I don't really have, I'll, I'll probably think of more things. I don't really have too much to add um, at the moment. So maybe I'll pick on, I'll, I'll pick on somebody now since some, since I was picked on. How about you, Josh? <clears throat> I'm getting unmuted this time. Um, the thing I wanted to say about, <clears throat> that I appreciate about the format or how, how it's structured is, I really oscillate like there are times where I'm really excited. I'm really like, I'm really head up about something and I want to like kind of be out there or like connect or be on the internet or something and, and share or, you know, kind of get some stuff rolling. And then a lot of the time I just, I kind of recoil from that. And I'm like, I just want to, you know, be in my life. And, and, and I, I feel I'll, I'll sort of maybe feel horrified that I felt the need to, you know, be public and i and i kind of oscillate between these states of mind um and so i think you know but there there is a part of me that's like yeah this is interesting stuff and i want to participate and i want to connect i want to put some ideas out there i want to get some ideas and it's nice like i feel like i've been able to just kind of do as much or as little as i as i want to i have an idea for a podcast and set it up and record it and drop it in the file and if I was on the hook for like constantly on a regular schedule, 
being out there generating content, I would I would find that really difficult for I think because of my personality and I think also because of just where I'm at in life and other things I have going on, that would be really hard to do. So I like that I can say, oh, I'm really excited about this and this and this. And over the next couple of weeks, I can record three podcasts and put them up and then I can kind of attend to other things. So I kind of feel like that works really well. I'd like to imagine that from the perspective of apparently somebody's whatever, what did you say? Daughter-in-law is actually listening out there. So, um, uh, so our, our audience of that one person that's listening um, maybe likes that there are all us different kind of people with our different takes on things and our different styles for doing the interviews and different interests and stuff like that. So I just like that. I can kind of uh, come in and out of it. Because I really do feel like I need to, I I need to like sort of retreat into my own little world a lot of the time. I think I'm just like I'm trying to like psychologically heal from a lot of experiences over the years, and um, and some of the times I just want to be really private. But then I'll come out of my shell and I really will be interested in in kind of getting online and connecting and stuff. So I like that I can do that. Just yeah, I like that too. I think I think a lot of us are like that. I mean, especially like maybe those of us who have spent time in academia, it's like that constant pressure to constantly produce something all the time is like really like takes your creativity, like the that oomph for creativity away. But it's really nice to just be like, oh, I'm super interested in a topic right now. I'm like, I have so much gumption to, to get on there and record stuff. So then you go, go and do it. And and even Jason and I like have taken turns just taking breaks when we're super busy in our lives. And it's just super nice to be like, I'm taking a break, but then there's all these other people who are going to pick up the slack because they're interested at the moment. It's like, it's a very nice format. I agree. Jason, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Well, basically the same thing. Just want to add that it's like both Ashley and I kind of, it seemed it's worked out where Ashley gets really productive and then I kind of I'm like, okay, I could like chill out for a while. And then Ashley's like, I'm taking a break. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling motivated, but you know, it's really, I mean, I think we've only slowed down like once or twice and it really is the sporadic contributions of all of you that has like allowed this thing to just keep going. Even if like, you know, Ashley and I, you know, are kind of like getting a little bit burnt out or whatever. Uh, and so it seems like, like when you spit out like two or three episodes, Josh, all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, it's like they come at exactly the right time. We're like, oh, my God, thank yeah. God. Right? And it's <laughs> the same with everyone else. It's like, OK, it's that, that came unexpectedly. And this is actually going to allow us to, you know, keep going for another week or two. And, and it's just that just kind of keeps happening over and over again. So, yeah, it, yeah. it seems to be a healthy, organic um, uh, organism at this point. I want to I want to add to that. Um... I feel like I've, and it's been true. It seems like my whole life, I have a lot of stuff kicking around in my head that I often feel like I don't have an outlet for. Like, mm -hmm. a, who do I talk to about this, you know, or where? And Ashley brought up being in academia, and and you know, there's so much, there's there's so much stuff that, like, I mean, like the part of this podcast that deals with the environment and sustainability and and things like that. I feel like you know the conversations we have here are like there's 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 almost no out of bounds it's kind of you can kind of go in whatever we're we bring in whatever weird kind of perspective and it's like when i was sitting in faculty meetings and stuff in the university and we're in environmental engineering and science so you think that like uh you know a no holds barred conversation about 
the, the calamities of various forms of unsustainability would be on the table. But it's in my experience, it's really not like that. There's sort of uh, there's an Overton window, I guess, to use a cliche. It feels like, you know, based around because the priorities are like, you know, what is going to advance your career? What's going to get you tenure? What's going to get you grants? What's going to endear you to National Science Foundation? What is sort of upbeat solutions focused kind of stuff? And, you know, I like it. I like that the podcast is so eclectic and there's nothing really that seems like it's off limits. And, it, and, 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 you know, I, I feel like not only is it a place where I can just kind of open my mouth and let my brains fall out about stuff, you know, talking with a lot of you all and, and the guests and stuff that we've had on, I find a lot of res resonance and also a feeling of like, well, I'm not, I'm not some one weird guy alone by himself having these ideas, but actually, Lots and lots of people have the similar kind of ideas. So it's refreshing mm -hmm. to connect on that level. Yeah, I would just add, like, it, it feels like one of the Twitter and then this this podcast feel like one of the only places where I can just say what I actually think without thinking in advance. Like, is this going to get me in trouble? Or is this person going to have a script of a response to what I'm going to say? And so therefore, like, the conversation is just going to be um kind of like scripted um and i i want to uh, compliment you josh recently um in your biochar episode you were pushing back on some the, some first of all these experts are like so amazing and so thoughtful and they're doing like really like this appropriate technology type thinking on scales that could make major impacts if people were like not such techno optimist freaks but you pushed back um and you were like you know, basically, like, I mean, do do we think that there are going to be energy constraints in the future and blah, 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 and like, just had a really convivial conversation. And you had different, like, results or different ways of thinking that than the other people in the podcast, but it was just like, it was just so nice to see that modeled. Um, so you did a really good job with that. Um, all right, Josh, you get to pick the next victim. Oh, if I'm victimizing somebody, I definitely got to victimize Nate. <laughs> what? Why, thank you very much. <laughs> um, well, so my, um, yeah, I'll, I'll echo the really uh, gratitude for being able to sort of dip in and out and not having to be responsible. But just now and again, you know, um, when I moved, doing a cluster of things, that's really nice. Um Generally, my uh, interests sort of fall in, um, so food production, farming, is always interested in that and hearing about how other people are doing it, particularly hearing about how um, smaller scale farms can, uh, you know, the economy of smaller scale farming and making that work and how that sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of the, the David and Goliath situation here with big ag in, in, in um, uh, the middle of the heartland Um also, any anything about the Midwest? So, like, I'm interested in ag general, generally, but all things Midwest, um, um, deepening uh, my attitude of Midwest supremacy lately. Um, so, so the food is is a big thing, um, and then you know the the culture. I'm I'm really fascinated by culture and politics, and I like to to talk about that stuff. So, whenever there's a neat conversation to be had, um, I like to jump on that. Um, kind of like, you know, riffing on that horseshoe theory and kind of like the, the strange, uh, right, left sort of breakdown in my own sort of mental taxonomy that I'm working on here, which is not, um, right and left, but robots and Buffalo, 
Um, I kind of want to flesh that <laughs> out. <laughs> um, anyway, that those are the kind of things. Those are probably the two main categories of things I, I get most interested in. And and robots, just robots freak me out right now. So the Doomer part, my Doomer. Anti-robot. It's the anti red alert. My my anti-robot, my Doomer is red alert right now with these robots. They're freaking me the hell out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I really appreciate about what you do, uh, Nate, is you get actual like real farmers on a lot. You know, like we like a lot of us get like homesteaders or like just starting out farming or like super permaculturally, but you're getting like production you know commodity production farmers who are who are actually moving towards regenerative right and are facing kind of you know in a midwestern environment very very you know uh commodity oriented large scale and just very practical people right who you know are looking you know they're looking to make it a business right they're looking to make a living out of it it's not just a side project it's not a hobby farm like and and really getting like like finding those people um, which I think is just very valuable. Um, it's very valuable compliment to everything else Dio is doing. So I just wanted to, I wanted to flag that as, as well as your, uh, yeah, your conversation with, with, uh, Jason Pogue was, I mean, not, not, not Jason Pogue, um, James, James Pogue, uh, on the, yeah, on, on the trout and horseshoe theory was, was a great episode. Mm -hmm. Thanks. It wasn't long enough though. <laughs> it have been a lot longer. Wait, wasn't it like needed, two hours? You needed more trout. I think you guys just needed to go until you couldn't, until you keeled over, you know? Well, and I think with, with James and I, I think that would be an extremely long time. I think we could. I know. That's why I wanted to see, you know, put you to the test. And you actually went uh, trout fishing with James, right? It did happen. Yeah. For, for briefly, we had, we had, we had a few minutes. There's a, I got a, got a, got a couple photos of James, James with a, uh, with a little rainbow. And we, yeah, we were up in, uh, when we were in Wyoming, it was, yeah. Hey, how nice. did the right. how did the cold plunge go? Dude joins the joins oh, the. Oh wait, wait, go ahead. Wait, sorry, Don. What were you saying? Let's finish this part out, and then we got. I was gonna say, how did the cold plunge go? Okay, so I'll, the cold plunge was terrible. Um, it was it was terrible. So I did it like five days in a row, but it was interesting. So the first day, because this water was, it was five degrees ambient temperature, and the water was probably thirty five degrees and moving. You know, so it's like stealing your heat as it's flowing fast and um i felt the first time i jumped in it felt like i was dying i couldn't breathe like it knocked my breath out and i couldn't breathe i was in for like five seconds um but over the five days of doing it uh i was able to kind of suppress like i was able to breathe probably stay in as long as about 30 seconds so it, like just within five days there was a really big change in how long uh i could stand it and how i regulated my sort of reaction to it it was still terrible i mean it really hurt it was very painful i didn't um, enjoy just, it at all just for some context <laughs> uh nate and i met up with some people in wyoming uh for this kind of deal adjacent event not really a deal event officially but and they a lot of the bros um following their bro science jumped into a freezing cold river and followed it up with time in the sauna which is actually the opposite of the correct um, approach you're supposed to go sauna first open up the pores then cold plunge and then you're supposed to let your body go uh up to regular temperature but it doesn't matter it's bro science so so dismissive with the bro science it was manly men doing manly things that's yeah. what it was but nate I'm wrote me a letter and in his letter he said i'm about to go do this <laughs> but then i never got to hear how it went oh 
That's nice. Okay, I want to welcome Trace and Trace and Simon are hosting um, episodes together. So it's perfect that Simon was going last. Um, so you guys can kind of introduce your your little series that you've been working on. Yeah, sure. All right. Um, well, yeah. So I came to do more optimism because I love the flexibility as everyone's talking about and the ability to interview interesting people. So it's kind of selfish. Um, because I think there was some really cool people that we've been able to interview that might not have been on there anyways. Um, really interested in anything around permaculture and appropriate tech. Um, and so from that, Trace and I got talking um, after interviewing a few people like uh, Shane Simonson and Joseph Lofthouse um, around growing plants and land-based uh, vegetable breeding and plant breeding. Um, so we came up with the idea, like we're both in the suburbs, um, what can we do with the suburbs? So that's really what we've been um, focusing a few recent episodes around, still trying to find some more people for that. Um, but it's been super interesting. I think there are, there's a lot of opportunity around people that we might not know that are just doing cool shit, like people that have food forests in the suburbs are some on our list. We've reached out to a few already. And then Trace had a really cool idea about like, who can we bring in that is currently taking advantage of capitalism or like exploiting capitalism essentially to to build these things uh, in parallel? Um, and how can we really take advantage of the capital out there to, to put these systems in place before we essentially don't need to rely on it anymore? Anything to add to that, Trace? Um... No, not really. I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, like, you know, Doomer Optimism is, you know, obviously came, you know, out of very much out of a homesteading and kind of rural kind of uh, uh, context. And um, I just think, you know, in the cities and the suburbs in particular, there's just so much sunk cost. Like we put so much effort into these areas um, that to just abandon them seems like folly to me plus they you know they have land right it's badly 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 used uh but they have land um where in many urban areas land can be a bit of a precious commodity um so the suburbs might represent the best opportunity for revillaging and kind of establishing new types of communities um but it's obviously incredibly difficult but i, I feel like the suburbia question is one we have to answer um or have answers to, or a multitude of answers to, because um, it's just, it represents, you know, 70% of America's lived experience is like in some sort of suburban area. Mm -hmm. Nice. I want to note real quick that uh, we do have one missing person that I guess uh, can't make it today, who's also a new host. Are we allowed to say a real name? Uh, I think just say her handle, just okay, in case. GG. Okay, going Godward. Uh, so right now we have six bearded men here and one and mama bear, uh, but we do have another, another, all another beards. Team. Wow. I didn't notice yeah. that. And We're so ubiquitous. I have the biggest beard. I wanna, well, actually, you know, me and, uh, Donald are competing for the biggest beard. Just want to note that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I really, I just want to say, I really appreciate Gigi's kind of emphasis on kind of the good life. And just just very kind of domestic, personal, spiritual kind of emphasis, I think. Um, yeah, I think I, I just I guess I just want to say that I think everybody is a nice compliment and nobody is really doing the same thing. Like everybody's just kind of doing 
uh, a somewhat different thing or teaming up to do a somewhat different thing. And they all just add immense value. So I want to note that. Yeah. It's I, it's funny. I, I don't really think, do this consciously, but I think I've become sort of a recruiter for DO people. You know, like I think she, I got her on the first, I you know, convinced her to go on the first time in the, the conversation with um, uh, the first literary hour. And I got Pogue and anyway, it's just funny how, and now I'm, I'm, I'm orchestrating an episode about homeschooling that I'm not even going to be. I know. I'm not even going to be on. I'm just putting people together. So. Well, at 300, yeah. at 300, if we have like 20 little squares here of, of active hosts, we'll know who to, we'll know who to, to think. Our, our output, our output is so ridiculous though, like two a week. And we, I keep saying like, let's slow down, but then people are recording. So it's fine. And I think probably what happens is people just listen to the ones that they're interested in or, you know, the hosts that they resonate with most, which is fine. But um, it's pretty amazing the output that we've kept up this whole time. I wanted, I wanted to ask a question for those of you who've had in-person get togethers or even kind of formal events, like it sounds like this thing in Wyoming or whatever. Um, I just wanted to ask what are your reflections or takeaways or insights or um, what do you think is the potential for those kind of things? Because, I mean, that's something that we could think about maybe for the coming year, if there are going to be maybe some regional get togethers or something like that. I just want to hear from people who've done it, what you think about it. Hmm. Nate? Um, I thought it was really uh, fun. Um, I think that there's, I see the most potential in like uh, regionally based ones myself. You know, I think there's the, you know, just uh, the um, national or, you know, even international, like the big ones seem like, you know, the, the, I think they're really fun. I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people to get to, obviously. Um, but I think the regional ones seem, and the and with the regional ones, I think those nicely facilitate kind of further collaboration. So I think, you know, there's kind of, that's kind of really exciting and neat. But, you know, there's also something to be said for, you know, if, if people can get to them, something um, big, um, or not necessarily big, but something, you know, from people all over, because there's such a nice um, cross-pollinization of, of, you know, ideas and, and personality. I mean, the, the thing in Wyoming was really, fun and interesting i'm still sort of unpacking it in my mind a little bit it was um definitely um a crowd that at once to me felt like extremely familiar and extremely foreign at the same time like one of those things like it's around people who easy to get along with really you know uh you know interesting fun um felt really really vibed with but also like different from in a way that was really really interesting but i think that that's part of what's um What's been excellent. So in, in that way, I think it's been a good, it was, it was kind of a good reflection of my experience uh, in this general area with, you know, on Twitter and on the podcast is, you know, really connecting with people, uh, you know, and like in a pretty deep way, but then also kind of like having those like kind of record scratch moments where it's like, eh, what, hold on, what? Oh, huh, that's different than me. Cool, 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 cool. Wow. Um, you know, like really, really uh, intense agreement. And then also just like, coming from a completely different direction which is super fun i, I like that it's one of the things i like one of the things i like most about you know this whole 
um, uh, the whole thing, I guess. Yeah, and I'll just add like that that the the meetups to me are a huge part of my excitement going forward. Like, um, <clears throat> the Wyoming event was kind of like, uh, let's draw in you know wh whomever we think might like resonate um, on these topics and just like see what happens and when they all get together and I guess it's kind of like what Twitter is for me it's just like tossing things out there and having like generative debates um which I wouldn't have in my normal day-to-day -day life with like my neighbors necessarily because maybe they're not like you know interested or worried about peak oil or whatever else um so having those moments in life where you're like it's like almost like a spiritual retreat <laughs> for me um but then after the Wyoming event like there was a little contingent of like literally Appalachian people and I was like you guys need to do some kind of event like th there's so many cool people doing such interesting things that like having that kind of um I don't know excitement getting everybody in the same room and seeing what everyone else is up to and then and then having it being regionally focused I think would be like just a huge power move I think there should definitely be like just a huge like <laughs> video game power up like once you get together and you know each other all these people doing really cool things in your region like there's just so much opportunity for collaboration like I think out of the Wyoming event people are already like making friends and and several different projects have come out of that potentially like publications but I think if it's it's regionally based it's much more powerful and I'm like I don't know that's what I'm most excited about are these these get-togethers I think Joey texted me from Wyoming and just to say how great of a time he was having and I think he said there's no way this doesn't happen again <laughs> yeah uh, well now know. after that event like a bunch of people want to get together in June in New York in New York State um, and people were, I was like, well, I'm going to be in my house in Chicago. Uh, maybe we'll have like a St. Patrick's Day party in March. And everyone's like, yeah, we'll go to that. Like, you know, so there's just like so much interest, I think, in just having these kind of meetups. I don't think I'm, I'm leaving the region, but I, I do think we're due for an Appalachian meetup. I think we are starting to to get a few people my critical mass. And what do you think, Josh? Are we, are we due for an Appalachian meetup? Some kind of weekend thing or i mean i'm always the i always live in fear that i'm gonna throw a party and nobody's gonna show up you know so that's like my activation energy barrier because i i get excited about it but then i'm like oh you know i mean we've had some great interviewees recently that i think could be potentially part of it i feel like uh and i want to put this question to the group i want to just be absolutely crass um because I think it sounds very cool. I also think it sounds like a lot of work, a lot of work to pull it off. So my very rude, crass question is, can we make money doing something like that? Can we make it worth it where we put a chunk of change in the bank as a result of doing it? Because if I agree to 80 more pro bono work, my wife is going to divorce me again. <laughs> um. I think it's possible. Yes. Uh, the thing is, th there's always like these trade-offs. Um, the Wyoming event was like lost money. Um, but we had the guy who hosted us, Paul McNeil, was super generous with his place and, you know, um, letting a lot of people come without paying or, or anything like that, which is fine. But um, 
I think there's a trade-off like uh, where it's invite only, it's small, and you like know everybody who's going to come versus open the invite. Then you've got the potential for wild cards, but then you might have like, you know, paying uh, people who will pay to attend the event kind of thing. Um, so I do feel you though, because it's so much work to put on these kind of events. And I like, I have actually two full-time jobs and I just keep doing this stuff just because I love it so much, but it's not earning, it's costing me money and but, time. But Ashley, I've been informed that you make a lot of money from this. On oh Twitter. yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I do. It's... I make so much money on, on Twitter. Well, Josh, um, I think our go-to um, move is like, you've already suggested, you know, let's just me and you, uh, you and I go visit Brian, go visit Veron. Uh, they don't live that far away. Uh, that might be good at just like meeting people individually, uh, hanging out for a day or two. And then uh, it might, you know, and then start small, like a, you know, an overnighter or something where it's not, it's not, I, I think an open invite might be too much pressure for us. You know, we're, we're humble people. Um, but, you know, having, having kind of a closed invite, like five or six of us who, who connected with the DO sphere somehow, that, that might be something that, that is doable, uh, especially if we kind of have met them in real life first. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the Appalachian area, just like the Northeast, are sort of like critical mass areas where like, um, you know, 30% of the DO sphere is within a five hour drive of Boone, North Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so like, I, I think just putting a flag in the in this in the ground and just saying hey in june of 2024 we're going to be here on someone's property right it, it creates a low stakes kind of thing where you know if it doesn't cost a lot it doesn't really matter if it doesn't make money on the first on the first round i think it make it could make a ton of money i mean uh eventually but i mean how does anyone really want to run a thousand person conference you know like i don't think any of us here really would like to do that uh, and that's where you start making money when you start bringing in sponsors and start playing the yeah. whole uh, capitalist game. Um, but I, I think for to to answer your very first question, Josh, um, you know, I've been kind of trying to make a point of seeing as many. Uh, I don't travel all that often, really, but it, when I do, I try and make a point of like visiting inter internet friends and making them in real life friends. Um, I think it's I, I think it absolutely is is a vital and necessary step for Doomer optimism is to start going from a uh, a mental intellectual activity right uh, into real world stuff right because I think most of us have kind of come to the conclusion that what is happening at your local level is by far the most important like the majority of your time and energy should be spent on your local community. And then if you have extra time, think about the regional and only then think about the international or national consequences of what you're doing. Um, and so I think getting people together doing with the cool shit that everyone's doing, right, and sharing ideas is like really the kernel of this Cosmo localism, you know, starting to create those connections among people across regions. Um but I think with DO, what it's missing mo more than anything else, and, and that's just because it's only two years old, right? I mean, it's just starting, right? Uh, and the nature of how it started, but it's missing a lot of like critical mass at the local level, right? And, and that's just because there's maybe 150, 200 of us spread out over the whole world, right? That's going to be very difficult to create those critical masses. 
But I think those regional meet meetups could start to get that where if you got 20 guys in the Appalachian area that are all within three or four hours of each other, that starts to you can start sharing resources, you uh, ideas, um, and then you can start connecting with adjacent regions. Um, I think this is the start. I mean, I really I you know, it's it's a slow, it's an iterative process, but to go from an online community to an in real life community that's working on real rubber meets the road problems in their local communities. Um, I think it's huge. I'm really, really proud and excited to see this new development within the DO sphere. And I think, I think going back to Josh's uh, point, uh, I think having something to do, uh, especially the person who's hosting it, they have a rather larger project that could use some labor um, and having a kind of the central core part of it is like, we're all going to, you know, we're all going to do engage in this project that's going to help the host out, and you know, in 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 return for them hosting us, uh, everything else. And I think that also reinforces the the notion of wanting to be practical. Is like actually when we meet up, let's just not meet up to talk about being practical. Let's actually get something done while we're at it. Mm-hmm. We'll do barn raisings. We'll just go around the country doing barn raisings. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd almost be willing to host if people wanted to help me build an exterior fence around my property. I've been wanting to do that forever. Yeah, we did this, these DO camps last summer, uh, the summer before this last one. Um, and I think they, they were pretty successful. Um, and people want that kind of thing, they, but they need the invite. Don, were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to say that one of my projects recently has been um, becoming pen pals with Dumarapas and people. <laughs> And uh, if any of you guys want in on that, you know, I'm shoot me your address, whatever. Uh, that's been nice. I think I, I realized Twitter was it was like giving um, giving myself a lobotomy using that, uh, and so I decided to stop giving myself a lobotomy and like. Uh, Writing letters has been has been real good, and the discipline I've been trying to keep is to reply to a letter the same day I read it. Oh wow, nice! Um, because I find that you know, if you let something sit, then suddenly like five months can go by, and you realize you never <laughs> never wrote back. Um, there's about a half dozen sort of non-internet optimism projects I want to do which I haven't been able to really get off, you know, so that sort of in my life, I feel like there's always about, you know, 20 things I want to be doing and I can do about four of them. Um, and, uh, but I think there's, I don't know, it's interesting. It's, it, it's, it's been fascinating to meet people and hear about people who are connecting with what we're doing and the range is pretty remarkable of the sort of people. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think we kind of nailed something, actually. Like, there's hard to, if you just think about the sort of range of political and religious ideas that are represented by the people in Doom or Optimism, I don't think there's a comparable collective of people who have managed to stick together this long and still do things. I can't think of one 
Um, I, I guess outside of churches, which oftentimes have that spread. Uh, but something that's as narrow as this. It's like what both really the, broad and really narrow. So anyway, I think it's the, a remarkable achievement and um and and it's worth pushing and and for putting energy into it. I think so. I really do. Um and especially as stuff gets weirder and weirder. Yeah. If the situation in general gets weirder and weirder. And I think more people that are, you know, are looking are looking for for new conversations and new um new ways of doing things and i think it's 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 really important to keep putting an alternative out there i wonder what you all think like hangs us together because i still don't really know <laughs> what hangs us together as a group I, I, my personal feeling is it's action i actually think mm -hmm. optimism is the key there's a lot of doomers out there but I think that if there's one thing that seems to like be like the linchpin is that we we agree roughly on like the state of affairs. We may disagree on who's most at fault or who's less at fault, blah, blah, blah. But we generally agree about the, the status of the world um, and that most of us have come on the other side of doom to like acceptance and now action. Like, what am I going to mm -hmm. do about it? Um and I think that the reason why it's attract, why it continues to attract people is because, you know, we're so far along the stages of grief, right? And as more and more of the world piles into the top of the funnel of the stages of grief, when they land to the end, there's really not a lot out there. I mean, frankly, right, right. You, you know, there's a lot of stuff with doom. There's a lot of um, anger, a lot of sadness, like, but when you get to denial over this, now I want to take action. Now what? Right. Like there's just not really a lot out there. And so I, I don't think it takes much for people to find Doomer Optimism. Plus, from an SEO standpoint, it's an amazing freaking name. Like as far as like you, you get it. Yeah, so. Right. Like you understand what that means or at least the general mm -hmm. Venn diagram, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just the action piece. I, I think it's the 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 moving mm -hmm. past, just grief and sadness. I and I definitely agree with that too. I've had a few people reach out and be like, "Hey, like, what, what, what do you, what is this doomer optimism thing?" And that's what I've come to. Like, after following you all for so long, I think it is like it's the action. That's what that's what brings me there, um, and that's what's inspiring about it. I think is people are actually doing things, um, mm. and that that's what I love about it. And and like who we can interview is more people that you hope inspire more people to do things themselves in the real world. I totally, I totally agree with you, Trace. That it's <clears throat> it's two elements of what you said. One is the being action oriented. After having gone through a big process of being disillusioned with some aspects of the status quo, and then you get to then what? And <clears throat> we're all trying to find our own ways to do actions that make sense to us in our own context. And you highlighted how, and and I think it's the same thing where we're like, oh, well, we could have a get together, but it's a lot of work and it's hard. Well, part of the reason it's hard. Is because we're all busy doing this stuff, you know, like like my day to day is trying to do what I'm doing, you know, and so that's what makes it hard. Um, and uh, you mentioned how a lot of people are kind of going through these stages of grief or stages of disillusionment and are looking for a place to land. We expect more and more people potentially looking for a place to land or a place to direct their energy 
rather than just being sort of paralyzed by, oh no, whatever. And um, we, Jason and I had a good conversation recently uh, with Chris Smage. And one of the things that we talked about were, can we identify some like natural constituencies of people around who are like at that stage of like <clears throat> trying to, you know, like if we're trying to grow our numbers, if we're trying to engage with more people, you know, I've joked, for example, that like our farm, I'm trying to make like a, a recovery people for recovering academics, you know, to sort of work off their academic hangover and get back in touch with, uh, you know, whatever, like thinking that like, you know, I and other people experience disillusionment. And so there's a natural crowd of people that are going to be moving through those feelings and looking for what's next after that. But I want to hear what all of you think. And is it possible that we're overlooking there are some natural constituencies of people that we could join up with maybe that are under our noses or that we haven't considered for people that have sort of made their way through a lot of the challenging questions but are you know just trying to find where to put their energy like what age groups or what with chris we talked about immigrants to the uk have have having like eastern european immigrants having taken over a lot of the farm work and stuff like that and 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 you know, Jason and I and Chris are all talking and we're sort of like the intellectually academic kind of people. And we don't a lot of times cross paths with like Eastern Euro European immigrants that do farm labor in, in, in rural England or whatever. But are the, would that be, a, you know, rather than I feel like I'm banging my head a lot of times trying to convince professional managerial class people to step off the path, you know, but maybe that's a waste of time. Maybe there's some natural constituencies of people that can engage with this stuff. So I'm wondering what you all have come across of people you've crossed paths with or what you think about that. So I have, um, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but in our Wendell Berry reading group, there was a week where it was just like you, Trace, me, and Nate, or it was a really small group of us one time. And we were talking about your business that you do, Trace, and just talking about work. And I had, um, I don't know, uh, something that came to me really clearly that uh is on it's one of my back burner projects which is that you have all of these young people now who are interested in ecological things maybe graduating with a degree in environmental studies and the only the i think one of the reasons do is captured getting an audience is that environmentalist thinking has become so degraded yeah and silly or we're saying like on the one hand crisis like do you know it's like we're facing the biggest ecological crisis in history you know cities are going to be underwater and then what do we need to do buy electric cars <laughs> or like trust in the un or something like that you know what i mean like there's a total disconnect between um and if you think about it for a second it's like okay that just doesn't make sense either the initial warning is fake or the people making the warning are completely delusional. It's one of those two. That's not very charitable, I realize. But um, in any case, there are, uh, I think, so lots of people, young people who are, okay, really interested in the environment. And then what path are they given? Okay, there's all these policy jobs, whatever those mean, or sort of like NGO, environmental NGOs kind of put people through that meat grinder but 
there's huge opportunities like, okay, so Trace, you work on doing sort of regenerative landscaping, working with municipalities and stuff. And from your telling, there's a huge demand for this and almost no one doing it. And there's no reason why young people interested in the environment can't, like the, the startup costs for a landscaping company are very low, very low. Yep. So doing that sort of eco landscaping, like young people could be doing, and that's just one of, you know, we could come up with a hundred ideas in the next hour of things like that, where you're actually getting your hands on the problem and doing something and making a living. So making a living as a farmer, that's really hard to do. And capital intensive, if you don't own land, hard, very hard for someone who didn't grow up in that life to make that change. Very, very hard, high failure rate. People should still do it, but you know what I mean. But landscaping, a lot of other things, much lower uh, barrier of entry. Yeah. And like putting, create, uh, sketching that path out for people and not just young people, but people who are like stuck in an office job and want to do a new path or something. And, you know, it's not like homesteading and farming, super cool. But those are, you know, that's just two, those are just two routes which have a, a very high failure rate and are just going to be really hard for someone who didn't, didn't grow up in a rural environment and didn't grow up doing farm work. A lot of, a lot of danger there also of people going out into the country and buying up land and stuff. I don't even know if it should be encouraged exactly for like urban uh, college graduates. So anyway, that's in terms of a constituency, that's something I think about a lot. I, th I think you're making, it, it was very interesting because I, I had a perfect example, like a little microcosmic example of what you're talking about, Donald. Like I was at, I was getting drinks with someone to talk about how I can expand the business to get more commercial clients, right? So more HOAs to start changing their properties over. And in the bar we were at, was a climate techie meetup group, which was nothing but like 21 to 24 year olds, you know, either just graduated or were still in college. And we asked them what it was about. And they were like, well, we just want to get people together to, to, to talk through, you know, the problems and see if there's some synergies. And I'm sitting here like, well, do any of you want to like build landscapes because if so I'm, I'm hiring two people you know like i need people right now because my i mean i put I, I put my shingle out eight weeks ago and like it's just like it's like beverly hillbillies shooting you shoot the ground and oil just comes up like there's so much pent-up demand for this type of work um but in order to do it you're gonna have to accept that you are no longer a white collar intellectual worker you are going out there and you're using your back and your arms and your legs to actively yeah. change the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I got the sense with how well everyone was dressed and how much this was such a scene for them that most of them didn't want to wake up the next morning at six, put on their disgusting pants and, and work gloves and go out there and dig trenches, right? But that that's actually the work that needs to be done. And mm -hmm. I find like the, you know, especially the kind of sunrise movement type of mentality is very much like we need a CCC, we need a civilian conservation corps. And it's like, OK, great. Are you going to dig the trenches? And they're like, no, 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 no. I, I just want to be on the policy side and make sure this gets funded. It's like, no, in the end, we really need 
millions of people digging trenches. You know, yeah. that's what we need. And we need, you know, and that's the kind of work that needs to be done. So if you're willing to do it, actually, um, uh, Empty America talks about this all the time, about how, like, if you want to move to a rural area and be a plumber, you will make hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, right? There's There are jobs everywhere if you're willing to be a blue-collar worker or a tradesman. And... Um, and the funny thing is a lot of, I mean, obviously you want your plumber to be educated and your elect electrician to know what they're doing. Right. When it comes to landscaping, right. Like you don't need to know anything. You really don't like your existing landscapers don't know anything. You just have to have an idea for design and you really have to be, be willing to work hard. That's really about it. You just have to be willing to work hard. And to your point, Don, the, the startup cost is like literally less than 2,500 bucks, which you can go. You know, anyone can go to Home Depot and get a $2,500 credit line, buy the, you know, buy the electric equipment you need and the batteries and boom, you're in business, right? You only need five or six clients to to make that cash. Or work. even buy some rakes, advertise yourself as zero, zero pollution, zero, zero noise emissions. pollution. That's zero. Yeah, we need to get, I, I was, I was going to, I was going to put a joking, uh, well, only half joking kind of uh APB out there for any uh any scythers in uh in uh Atlanta metro area that I'd be happy to hire you instead of having someone push a lawnmower around. Well, um, okay, so, so wait, who are, I... who are gonna who are gonna lend out rent out their goats. Yeah. Let me, just, let me put it in my perspective real quick, Tress on okay. that just because so I've I've been working for a part-time for a landscaping company that that Marcus itself is sustainable that she's really into biodynamics. Um, most of the clientele, if not all the clientele are the top one or 2% uh, income bracket of the county, which is saying a lot. Um, not a lot of people where I live that, you know, aren't millionaires and, and you're working on the second home are, are really into paying, paying for landscaping. Uh, and even those folks, it's mostly ornamentals. We got, she's trying to encourage some of her clients to move towards edibles and that's like I, I helped install like a raised bed garden and and stuff but but it's not you know i i think there's a youtube channel i've been getting into recently edible acres where it's like you know it's just a food forest type people actually sim pointed me to it um simon and you know and they've kind of expanded out to their neighbor's property and a couple other people's property and it's starting to become like a village like just informally and i'm wondering how in, in this kind of business idea like, how do you get from that to like this organic development of like mutual interdependent kind of food forest, food provisioning? Because I, I just, I don't see that here yet. I don't, I don't see the market for it, at least in that business kind of business model. This might be taking us way off track. I'm sorry if it is. <laughs> it might be a whole different podcast. Fraser, Simon, do you have a quick answer? Well, I mean, this is where I've become sort of a raging capitalist in that like, I really do think like the, the glue that holds communities together oftentimes are the small businesses, you know, like, um, you know, whenever, when people are like, uh, you know, name an intentional community that, that has lasted, I'd be like every city in America started with a hundred families moving to an area and saying, we're going to start a community, but it didn't become a community until they let outsiders in who are doing trade and businesses and creating mm -hmm. markets. Right. And that doesn't mean we have to have Disney and just Omnicorps that are in charge of everything. But I think business, especially at the local level is the glue that holds things together. Um, and 
So I think businesses uh, with that intentionality can absolutely help foster that 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 connection. Right. You know, mm. I, I, landscaping in particular, they're the pollinators of a community. They're like one of the only tradespeople who see their community twice a month, every month. If you have five or 10 people in the same neighborhood, you know who they are and what they want out of life. Start connecting them. You planted blueberries in this person's yard and you planted onions in this person's yard. Help them facilitate that connection. Mm -hmm. right? um, and that that is really how I'm setting up Green Box is to. First, get the critical mass and then start to make those connections among people. So it acts almost more like a co-op than a um, than a landscaping company. Um, I think business has a tremendous role to play in all of this. Um, I would just add, going back to your comment, Trace, about um, that experience in the bar with the tech bros, is this just brings me back to Nate's uh, robots versus Buffalo question, which I think is actually pretty central to the DO. Uh, universe as we're moving forward like basically what is our vision and we and i've gotten into it with the mars bros recently and like the effective accelerationists and all these people like you know what is our vision actually like there's actually a substantive difference here between everyone is white collar there is no more labor like robots will do the labor and that will somehow make us free versus whatever it is we think. Um, and I think like that's actually pretty central to to the whole vision. And I think one thing um, to answer Josh's question, like to think about what how to draw in the constituency. Like I just keep going back to my dissertation research, like people who grew food in their backyards in Chicago found each other because they kind of were drawn to it for spiritual reasons, almost like this spiritual malaise that is solved by doing something with your hand and producing something real, physical in this world that we're like, all of your agency is sort of channeled through all these different rules, regulations, like ways of thinking, even everything is like, increasingly clamped down, like your ability to be creative or productive in some way. And they found each other because they started doing these creative things and needed help and needed someone else who knew what they were doing. And just having heard of one another, we're like, I, if I'm going to keep chickens, I need to talk to somebody else who has done this and go see their setup. And like, there's such simple ways to, they do the Chicago chicken coop tour where you just like go to other people's houses and see their chicken coops. And like the power in that, just like literally seeing that somebody else is doing it and it's possible and my in-laws in Minneapolis um, were part of this thing uh, where their part of their neighborhood in Minneapolis is like kind of suburban in scale in terms of like there's this yards and the house they're set, sort of set apart. And somebody set up a mushroom cooperative, which was like almost like sharecropping. So who wants to keep riffing on mushroom cooperatives? <laughs> I, I got a quick one about that. So I'm not <laughs> sure if you guys know of uh, uh, Curtis Stone. So um, he's like the urban farmer. Uh, he started in Kelowna in British Columbia with a very similar model where he was actually. Okay, we, we, we've already moved on. Yeah, okay. I know. It's okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Drifting off the of mushroom cooperatives, though. Go, go ahead, Simon. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, go, go, Simon, you finish. Okay. Just uh, this, pointing out a similar model with this dude called Curtis Stone. He started out um, in British Columbia in, in this uh, medium sized city where he was borrowing people's yards and growing mass amounts of vegetables. He was completely bicycle powered and he hired a few people and was eventually running like 
a couple dozen yards or something within the city uh, to produce vegetables. And whoever owned that space got a cut of the vegetables and he sold everything else at the farmer's market. Yeah, um, yeah. So, like fundamentally, I think cool. the question is is like really a spiritual one is what I was mm -hmm. getting to. It's 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 like a, well, and, and maybe Nate wants to expand on the robots versus Buffalo question. Well, yeah, I can jump on that part here because, um, you know, as you're talking, uh, and I think for me, sort of, it comes down to like, I think we've started, like we've progressively more failed to view ourselves um, as humans embedded in nature, um, you know, and thinking in terms of ecology, no matter where you're at, this isn't simple. I mean, I think it shows up and 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 showed up initially, I think, around homesteading, things like that within DO with a really heavy emphasis because it's kind of like you're you're engaging directly with uh, land. But um, so it's it's just obvious, but it's you know, it's everywhere and everything at all times. You know, we are. Um, living organisms uh, embedded in a world of life. Um, and so um, for me, uh, a lot of, you know, is an orientation towards things human and things living um, and uh, a repulsion from sort of this uh, accelerationist tech stuff that, that, that's happening now, just like a, a, an utter repulsion from it is just anti-human um, you know, anti-life. Um, and, and so I think there's a, a cleavage there that, um, uh, you know, I, I think shows up here. That, that's sort of what I'm getting at with this buffaloes versus robots sort of idea. You know, it's like, you know, give, like um, a re-embedding of ourselves in our, uh, in our environment. I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways that's sort of like environmentalism where in my view is really progressively gone astray is it's this dualism between the environment and um, and uh and people you know there the, were these separate things it's like and i'm not i don't mean to pick on this and i think i've used this example before and it's actually a good thing in context but it's like that leave no trace ethic when you're camping which again in the in the setting it's used in is a good thing i'm not saying it's a bad thing but i think that sort of thinking that as humans we're not supposed to leave a trace like we're like it's this separate like we're separate from uh separate from our environment uh i think is is kind of insane um as a, a you know as a way to live so re-embedding ourselves in our world in a physical way not a mental way but in a physical tangible ecological way mm. is central to this whole conversation from my point of view as a keystone species except we yes. know we know what happened with the buffalo last time so they need to be better armed this time <laughs> or they at least need to have some gadgets uh <laughs> Instead of, you know, you know, we're moving away from the robots to the buffalo, but the buffalo are allowed to have gadgets and, you know, automatic chicken door openers. I think uh, Nate's absolutely right. And um, that, like, if there is a path forward, it's not leaving things alone. That's actually, like, the problem is that... This, I mean, this is just like a Wendell Berry 101 point, but there's just so few people who are actually involved in managing uh, the environment directly, whether it's farming, logging, mining, fishing, um, but that those are the like the basis of all culture are those things. Um, and uh, you know, we have 
there's this idea of like pristine untouched nature which we now we know is just not true that north america was a very managed environment you know we now know like okay that the the amazon rainforest was a managed environment that that um and you can just see it in an abandoned farm or something you know like up here it's just get, things could just get thick with blackberries brambles and you know, you know, you, an environment that's left alone gets really degraded. And it seems like the DO ethos roughly is just a combination of that and, you know, a, a roughly agrarian approach, but one that's not ideological and one that, you know, we can make fun of ourselves and and so on. Because there's some, there's this guy I read occasionally, he, he kind of reached out to me and, you know, he says all the right things. You know, he loves Wendell Berry, but it's like it almost feels like a a computer script could have generated the writing. He's like hitting all the agrarian localist points or whatever. But it just I don't know. It just feels so ideal. It seems like even nice ideas can be become really rigid and ideological. Um, and really, at the end of the day, it's just all about Adam Van Buskirk, the noted accelerationist. Uh, I I got right before we got on here. Right before we got on here today, um, I had an exchange with him where uh, it kind of makes sense to me ideologically. I'm like, I I wrote something extremely uh, critical of of Malthusianism, right? And he was like, "Well, what about Malthus? He was just right." I'm like, "Oh, you're a Catholic Malthusian. That makes everything make sense." Malthus wasn't entirely wrong. Anyway. Because everyone left Europe. They were running out of all the resources. They left. And suddenly, there was all this pressure relieved from Europe. You know, People I mean, they started he, using coal because they were running out of wood in England. Yeah. Has anyone actually read Malthus? I'm really curious to actually read him. He's one of those names that gets mentioned all the time, but I feel like no one actually reads him. So I'm curious. I actually would like to sit down and read his book. I wonder if there's, there's interesting things there. Yeah, I should do that too because I just I just read a book about him. I just read a book about him, so I'm kind of all keyed up on it. But um, I should read. I haven't read him specifically. He was a total shithead, wasn't he? Um, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the block, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't think John Stuart Mill was the life of the party. You know, yeah. what I I tell me if you all have this impression. I kind of feel like a lot of times when I if someone says, "Oh, that's Malthusian," that's just a cue for like this is a bad idea. So we're just going to stop that part of the conversation. Like it kind of just shuts it down, you know? And I like come from my ecological yeah. background. I don't know. Maybe he was a huge shithead. I don't know. But my, I'm like, are we just, is this just an avoidance of discussing natural limits? You know, like, so I, I don't really know how to feel about it, but I just feel like often when Malthus comes up, that's just cue that like we're stopping this line of conversation. I used to think that a little more. I read this book. I haven't read him. It'd be good. I, I, I should read um, his stuff. I just read a book about him. Because um, that was my general impression was like, oh, he's just talking about limits. That's pretty basic stuff. But he was, uh, my impression at this point is that he's like maybe the original spreadsheet brain. You know, like he was, um, he, you know, and his calculations about, you know, food and food production um, he basically just completely ignored the way that food was produced other than grain, you know, and was just ideologically completely, it was an ideological 
ecological commitment for him, completely committed to the only way food is properly produced, the only way civilization can properly produce food is by, you know, doing grain cropping um, and, you know, basically supporting, a, you know, an, an aristocracy with grain cropping. And then he had no concern at all for how people, how, how peasantry would produce food to feed itself. And so he didn't account for that at all in, in the way that he thought about food and population. And so his, the way he thought about it was completely, uh, like I said, in this really original spreadsheet brain kind of thing, didn't, he took a trip and you know, his book describes that he took a trip up to Lapland to view um, sort of how, and, and it, it's amazing uh, episode and how a person can view something and learn nothing from it. You know, he just kind of dismissed, uh, you know, the Laplanders as primitive people without noticing, or again, accounting for his, the relationship with the reindeer and how they sustain themselves on it. His basically, it was takeaway, his basic takeaway was, you know, they're primitive and don't really produce food. Um, so he, he, he understood nothing about agriculture, nothing about food production, and just had these extremely sterile and simple, um, uh calculation for how you know you know you, if population grows too quickly it'll run out of food basically and 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 which is you know on the one hand it's like yes there is a natural limit to things uh, in the end but we've never even kind of approached it um and um the problems that Malthus pointed to had a lot more to do with enclosure uh and uh changing social arrangements than they did um actual natural limits so he was full of shit completely and was the original spreadsheet brain is my takeaway and um, and his and his views are so often taken to be you know sort of um genocidal right to be yeah. like we, we don't and he himself was kind of genocidal it was for like, sure like, eugenicist genocide. he was off matter yeah 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 um, can I suggest, um, as we wrap up, to kind of um, envision what we think, in the best case scenario, this little piece of the puzzle, Doomer Optimism, can do or could possibly um, help make real? And I would like to start, while my internet is working, to say that um, I personally think with active stewardship, nature is extremely abundant. And I think a lot of the like degrowth mindset is sort of like we just need to do less of everything and I just think there's a huge opening for doing more regenerative stuff like rather than the messaging being all about less and less it can be about like we can do so much more and have so much more meaning um and so much more stewardship and so much more like communion with nature um by having an active relationship with it with these like certain principles and um, for a while now, I had been thinking about building some kind of like, like, because DO is so informal and people keep saying like, how do I find other DO people? And I'm like, I don't know, figure out like your people and DM them or whatever. Um, and I was like, maybe we can do some sort of network. And I'm like, but I don't really want to make a website or be like, a, you know, a tech person. Um, Peter Allen had a similar idea, um, regenerative farmer who's been on the podcast a few times in Wisconsin. Um, and he is behind the scenes right now building out like some sort of website for people who are active stewards. Um, and, and basically the way it's going to run is like people who are actively stewarding land and have like proven their chops like Peter, um, can invite other people into the network as at like the, 
moderator level and then people who are brand new to it can join this network in like a membership capacity like pay pay for this you know ability to be in this network where they'll have mentors ideally regionally um, and then the mentors maybe get a small stipend for for sharing their knowledge um, so it's kind of like it's like permies but maybe a little bit more um, regionally focused um, and focused more towards building relationships in person um, he's still coming up with a name and is not ready to announce it yet. And we're going to do a, a podcast about it once he's ready, but I'm super excited about that because it might be like an actual place for people to connect over the thing. Like I was talking about earlier, solving issues, but then also like meeting in person and like ramping up this ability to know who in your area is like, you know, on the level with you. So I'm excited about that, that in my wildest dreams, that becomes uh, something real and active and like used and like a place for people to go who want to have a relationship with stewardship. Um, and then, you know, my other wild dream is just to have uh, keep making cool friends because it's it's not a dream. It's real. It's already happening. But it's just like I, I could not have been more. Every person I meet via Dio is like so cool and makes me just like so happy to have met them so I'm th those are my dreams anyone else I think there's a couple of things I don't know how wild these are but you know I I think I've made this point before but I see the the best kind of growth strategy as basically getting more people taking ownership of the project um the audience right now you know it, it hasn't it's been kind of flat and I for a long time and I think that's fine um I don't think that's actually very useful metric at this point. Um, but I am very excited that we have more and more people becoming regular hosts, right? And so I I think, you know, I would love to see that trend continue um, of, you know, like say we do this again at 300, like I was saying, and there's 20 people, there's 20 squares on the screen. And, you know, that brings in a new set of diverse kind of sensibilities and topics um, and perspectives. So I think that just in terms of kind of the network, uh, having more people buy in in terms of actually hosting would be amazing. So that's also for anyone listening to this episode, um, that might be you. And I think what we've already discussed before, I'm, not, I'm thinking regionally, like I think it would be good to meet up with some of these people we've interviewed uh, more regionally, uh, you know, and actually create it a real flesh and blood network. And, you know, whatever actual events occur out of that, um, is good, you know, preferably being active uh, events that accomplish things. So for me, that's, you know, if I'm thinking like a year from now, what I'd like to see that, that, that would be my wildest dream. I wanted to make a plug for, it's an idea that we had batted around a while ago. I don't know if anybody's thought more about it, but we talked about the idea of like an internship program it kind of came out of discussions about how many of us are reluctant to travel or have whatever life constraints that make travel around to meet each other difficult. So we flipped it over and said, well, what if we have interns that go maybe seasonally, you know, they come here and stay for a season and work with me on various projects. And then they go work with Trace in Atlanta for a season or something like that. Um, and so if it, <clears throat> if the capacity gets built to the point where people feel like they could handle an intern for a season or however long then we could talk about maybe passing young people around that way are we going to compete we're going to compete with woofers 
with with whooping yeah i mean honestly like, like the way the the way peter's network sounds like i really like the idea of vetting the mentor level because like what ends up happening with wolf is that there's like a handful of awesome hosts but then there's a lot of bad or like exploitative people who use woofers as well and so i feel like it would be really cool to have a network where it's like you know, this, the only people who are at this level are vetted by other people who are at this level. And you're, you know, so it's like, you're a vetted person. We know that you're cool. We know that you're not going to be exploitative to people. And, you know, um, I don't know how wild these are, but I would love, uh, to have, <laughs> to put together a kind of directory of paths that people can take that are mm -hmm. like job paths, different paths that are, that are interesting that are hands-on, that are doing uh, things and that don't have a really high barrier of entry um, because uh, I think that would be incredibly valuable to a lot of people. And I think that ultimately <laughs> it's not like a, people have to, to, to actually take the steps themselves, but I think just sketching out some of those um, would be so helpful because I think I just hear it so often, you know, people are, okay, I'm 22. And like the, there used to be a kind of, I don't know, nice straight shot into various professions, but I don't know if it's not totally, I, I think it's a lot of that's broken down. So it's not, uh, totally clear into thinking about like well what is the sort of life you actually want to lead um <laughs> there's a lot of interesting interesting paths um it would be nice to uh to have a i i i've been working on kind of on the back burner now but like an actual print doom optimism newsletter i think that would be really neat uh, something that you can like hand to someone yeah. face to face and um uh and I think that that could have could be interesting um and just a different thing like just moving things away from online and um and then you know I, I guess I could I'd like to keep doing the pen pal thing and encourage people in that direction um I think that there's like uh you know, something happened, I guess the group chats are interesting a little bit, but I think that, you know, we're doing thinking in public is interesting and, and, you know, it's like we find people, but I think that there's something that needs to happen that's not in public. Like Andre Breton in the 1960s made this cryptic comment in an interview that he never followed up on about how maybe it's time for the surrealists to go underground. Uh, I think about that sometimes. Love it. Who I wonder that. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, who said that, Donald? Andre Breton is a um, founder of surrealism. I like I your gonna... of I like your idea of the of the <clears throat> print newsletter. And I don't know if y'all are aware of County Highway. Have y'all seen this? Yeah. News yeah, I've been getting it. I really like it. If you don't know about it, it's a project by Walter Kern and others 
But the idea is they publish a newspaper. I think it comes out every couple of months or something, but you actually can't get it online. You have to get the physical thing and it's yep. got some not nice articles and stuff. I, I would, I'd be in to contribute to something like that if people wanted to work on it. Josh, just for your information, the place we stayed in Wyoming, Walter Kern's been to that place a bunch of times. And it's like one of the only place in Wyoming where County Highway is. And then at the County Highway newspaper was like all over this place where we had this event. And then um, Farron Morgan had an article in it. And Paul Kingsnorth was at our event. And I was like, oh, Farron, I don't have anything to share with you of what her thing is. And then I was like, oh, she's got an article. So I like gave Paul Kingsnorth County Highway. And he's like, oh, cool. I'm like, yeah, she'll be speaking later on. So there's like a lot of synergies with people, I think, similar to us who are like, you know, on that kind of interest. And I'd like to do it with no subscriptions or anything like that. Like there used to be in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, and this was really made possible through sort of the hardcore punk music scene, which existed then in a way it doesn't anymore, where people could print publications and have them distributed all over the country just via those sort of networks. And so my idea is that like, okay, we'd have you know, 20, 30 people that would get a stack of them in the mail that we knew would pass them around but that it would be like, I think County Highway still has a website. Right. I'm like totally. I love this. Off, you know, I love so it's this like idea. you gotta know somebody to, yep. to get a copy. Yeah, that, that kind of relates to sort of like if I were thinking about a year from now, um, you know, and just thinking about myself, I want to, I would like to be, um, you know, less online. Um, for sure. And, you know, I think part of that, uh, you know, I like to see, I think print and like tangible stuff and analog things are really valuable. And so it would be very nice to be able to um, read what other people saying and write and contribute to something like that. I, I think that would be really, really neat. Um, Cause I also think it encourages, you know, like, like what we're talking about being and doing things in the world in a way. Um, uh, I think there sort of the analog analog life is more directly uh more directly does that so much energy just spins off in a lot of other directions when it's um, done online um so that's sort of what i would like and, and also picking up on just ashley's core idea there of um abundance over it's, it's sort of abundance over scarcity you know um and so i think that and that's the missing um ingredient from degrowth which i think what degrowth does get right is just sort of the idea of like divorcing economy I, I just think divorce, divorcing the idea of growth, of abundance from uh, economic growth, uh, yeah. that's, yeah, divorcing abundance from economic growth is really, really, really important and central to, to how I think about all this. So um, ways to promote that in the world um, uh, tangibly in an analog way would be really cool. Love it. I think Dio is, has the potential to be the midwives of the future. Um, I, I, like we're heading into some very troubling times and it doesn't have to go as bad as it could go. Uh, and in large, in large part, it will be people at the local level with infrastructure already in place. You know, mm. I, I really like the analog idea, you know, I mean, we could decentralize it even more Donald by like, you know, centrally producing it and then shooting the PDF to local distribution centers who will use local printers to print their versions of it. So we're actually supporting local communities, uh, even with the printing of them. 
Um, I, I, you know, I like to think about like, you know, how could we make Dio as like anti-fragile and like anti and collapse proof as possible. So like, no matter what happened, let's say we don't have the internet, like who's the Paul Revere's riding between nodes, <laughs> right. To spread the news and, and keep those, those things alive. Um, because who knows how, how much things will get up, upturned, you know? Um, we're one of the few groups of people like looking at that future dead in the face, you know, the darkest of futures dead in the face and saying, how will we survive? Well, if that comes to pass, we're, DO will not be a minoritarian thing. It will not be a fringe thing. It will be the primary support for nodes of people. So mm -hmm. what, what does that mean? Like, how would we even organize that or communicate among between regions and between nodes? Um my wildest vision is that it actually becomes a sort of decentralized backbone for a future economies and future sharing uh, with or without the internet, with or without the high technology we're dealing with now. Because um, there aren't that many people thinking about it, not not like soberly, you know, not like practically, you know. Mm -hmm. I just need a designer, by the way, to get this newsletter off the ground. I, I can put together words, but I can't do design. So. All right, reach out to Donald and and email me too if you are a designer listening to this. You can, and, uh, yeah, if you, you can be. call it the uh, the Buffalo Times, a Doomer Optimism publication. Yeah, Everything you always want to go with the Buffalo. I'm on. Yeah, I think we should. It would be nice to have Doomer Optimism newsletters that capture the different the different flavors, the different sort of uh, I don't know clicks or uh, clicks not the right word. Um, I love it. Trace, your thing sounds terrifying. I don't know if I want to be the the part of the infrastructure for a future economy. We're, we already are, we already Donald. Are. We already are, man. We already are the, the an alternative to what's going on. Simon, do you have any uh, final thoughts? Uh, anything that helps make these connections in real life. I love all the above ideas, but I think there's a lot um, of opportunity in the inspiration that we can bring through Doomer Optimism, but like playing off everyone else's ideas here, like. Donald's about like laying out these playbooks for people for how they can pick up this lifestyle and get them connected with people who can teach them how to do these things. Um, and like going from Trace as well, like so much inspiration around how we can teach people to do these things and sort of almost like franchise these little ideas. Um, and, and then obviously using like a Doomer Optimism Dispatch in real life newsletter to get it out there too. I love it. All right. Well, I appreciate you all. And I appreciate appreciate going Godward too. She couldn't make it. Um, I feel really humbled to be a part of this. It's really been a, just just a huge privilege um, to be able to meet you guys and, and, and to do this podcast. And I really appreciate you all. Jason, any last thoughts? Good vibes. Good vibes moving forward. Let's do it. <laughs> I hope right. someday I get to host my second episode. <laughs> yeah. I know. Someday. someday. You're a perennial first time host and we and we know we all love perennials the most. So Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. I think the next year Doom Rockism is gonna all be all about growing giant vegetables. <laughs> the biggest pumpkin wins. That'll actually be the thing that breaks it up. I'll walk my dad, away. My dad's I'll gonna help. My dad's going to help my 13-year-old grow a 2,000-pound pumpkin this year. We're doing it. 
And Ashley's in Chicago, so you can come see it. You can come down here and see our giant pumpkin. I'll sabotage it somehow. Hug the pumpkin. We need a picture of Ashley hugging the pumpkin. <laughs> I said giant pumpkins are fine as long as people use them for boats. The most silly possible <laughs> re- thing to do with them, as long as yeah. they carve out and paddle down a river with them, then I'm okay yeah. with it. That's a deal. <laughs> all right. Thank you all. Everybody. Yep. Bye. Thank you.